Hey, we are in our final week of our series, Our House. And I want to just start it with this just single phrase here, no matter how hard we try, I think you're all realizing this, you can't do it all, right? You can't do it all. You want to, I want to, we want to do it all, right? I sit in the morning and I watch the news and I just think, oh, I'd like to address that issue. I'd like to address that. And I, and I realize I can't do it all. Impossible. And COVID just really brought this home for families, right? They, I, I think moms and dads or single moms, single dads, whatever the house may be, they kind of worked out the way life should be. And then COVID hit and everything just got thrown into the wash and, and tumbled and tumbled and tumbled. And, and one mother says this, I, I just want to quote you this. You kind of decide what's important in the moment and you focus on that and do a good job with that. But something else has got to give and something else will. And I, I think a lot of us have found out during this COVID that we can't, we, we, we had to stop. We had to slow down and, and stop our regular routine. And now we're kind of stuck at what, what, what do we do now? What, what, what can we do if you can't do it, do it all? In other words, you can do anything, but you can't do everything, right? We all know this. When we say yes to one thing, an idea, a way, or a habit, we simultaneously say no to something else. That, that's just the nature of it. And why? Because you can't do it all. Moses needed his father-in-law to point this out to him. Moses had been meeting with every single person in the entire Hebrew nation. I mean, I don't know. I, the numbers are staggering. And apparently he was meeting with every single one of them that had a complaint or an issue. But his father-in-law, Jethro, visits, and he immediately realizes that Moses isn't being the leader that he could be. Right? He's trying to do it all himself. And Moses hasn't realized that he can't. We read this in Exodus chapter 18, verse 17. It says, Moses' father-in-law replied after he said, you know, stop it. And Moses said, well, I got to do this. The people count on me. And his father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people, I want you to notice that, not just you, but the people also who come to you will only wear yourselves out. So not only Moses gets weared out, but all the people get worn out too because they're all trying to funnel all of their issues into one person. Nobody's sharing the load. Right? Moses is doing it all himself, and so it frustrates everybody. I don't know if you've ever been at a job like that, and a boss is like the bottleneck. You know, everything's got to go through the boss, and this is what's going on. Right? They got this nasty bottleneck, and his name is Moses. And Jethro decides to bust off that bottleneck. Boom. So he says, not good. Going to wear everyone out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Why? Because you can't do it all. Something's got to give. Here's the probable situation. If you read one chapter back in chapter 17, the Israelites had just defeated the Amalekites, and they had gotten lots of booty, right? Lots of plunder from beating up on the Amalekites, bad, bad Amalekites. So there's lot, lots of spoil to divvy up, and more than likely, most Bible scholars think this was the issue. This was everybody, hey, where, where, what about my share? What about my share? What about my share? And so they're all inundating Moses because there's, there's money to be had. There's money to be dispersed. And everybody lines up when there's money to be dispersed, right? So, boom, they're all... And this is just conjecture. Um, so Jethro tells Moses how to be a better leader, right? Why? Because you can't do it all, Moses. You, so he's speaking, he's going to divide up, he's going to divide things up here. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. 
Verse 22, have them, not you, have them, because you can't do it all, Moses, right? Have, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can handle themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Why? Because you can't do it all. Same exact situation a bit later in Numbers chapter 11. The people are complaining. They're getting tired of manna, right? Manna pancakes, manna sandwiches, and manna casserole. It was just as horrible, horrible. It's like after Thanksgiving, right? Turkey, everything. And so in Numbers chapter 11, verse 17, Moses is com- like, God, right? <laughs> these people, these, these people, right? And God says, I, and this is amazing. I love this. I will come down and speak with you there. He says, meet me at the tent. Meet me at the tent of meeting and we'll talk. And I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Why? Because you can't do it all, Moses. Right? Jethro's telling them, and now God's telling them, right? You can't do this. Now, I want to jump to chapter 6 of Acts. I'm going to be hitting a lot of passages. If you've got your Bibles, your fingers got to be awfully nimble this morning. Acts chapter 6, this reality that you can't do it all meets the growing church head on, right? In the form of their, they were neglecting the Greek-speaking Christians, right? The Jewish-speaking supposedly were getting more than the Greek-speaking Christians. And, and in light of the repeated call of the care of widows from the Mosaic law, right, this was a big deal for a community that claimed to have no needy person among them, right? Well, apparently they do, right? We, we, we tend to, like, look at the early church and go, oh. They weren't. They were just like us, people. So chapter 6, verse 1 of Acts. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained. And that word complained, I love it, it's the exact same word from Numbers chapter 11, verse 17, murmured. They murmured, right? Paul's trying to help us see a connection here, murmuring when there's money. And it's like, ah. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them murmured against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. They were murmuring because of all the money and possessions. Now, check this out. Go back one chapter. Same situation as back in Exodus. One chapter early, what had happened? All the people had laid all of the stuff that they were willing to share with those in need at the disciples' feet. And now... People are lining up again. (laughs) Where's mine? Where's mine? And the disciples are like, oh, I got to preach, but I I, got to. So there's really three issues. Um, The first issue is fair distribution, right? There are Christian people and fairness, and that's a big deal, right, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, but the second thing was shielding the apostles from a con- the apostles were shielding the people were shielding the apostles from a possible conflict of interest charge, right? That's why the pastors we pa- we don't handle money, right? You all literally elect a board, and then we select a finance committee. They handle the money, and they have monthly meetings, and they they sweat out how they will spend your money, and they take it seriously. And we, we have serious discussions to make sure that what you give to this church is being properly spent, not only on ourselves, but on the, what? Reaching this community. Reaching this community. 
And the third reason, because the apostles knew, right? You can't do it all. So three reasons, fair distribution, shielding the apostles from conflict of interest, and well, you can't do it all. Acts chapter 6, verse 2 says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. Now, that sounds so derogatory. It sounds so like, okay, the preachers are up here and everybody else is down here, but that's really not at all what's going on here. As you read the situation, you quickly recognize that that's, that's not the situation. It's just the phraseology that they use. The fact of the matter is Jesus waited on tables, right? He fed 5,000 in one situation, fed 4,000 in another situation. And, and we, we know there were tons of stuff that he did that we don't even have recorded. He was going around serving tables, serving the physical hunger, thirst of people, preaching the word, but also, right, Jesus waited tables. The 12 had been supernaturally empowered to preach the word, but it would have been foolish to spend that work in order to focus on this one need. But, and, and very few have heard this message a lot of times, and I, it kills me that they don't arrive at this corollary truth. It would have been foolish also to ignore the need of the people and focus only on the preaching, Right? Are you getting that? If we focus only on the preaching and ignore people's physical needs, or if we focus only on their physical needs and ignore their spiritual needs, they're malnutritioned. They're, they're not, they're, they're not going to become healthy. They're just not going to become healthy. They need both. We need both. Now, notice the 12 didn't impose a solution on the church. Right? Instead, they gathered all the body together and they shared the problem with them. And I know you guys are aware of this, but right now we've, we are going through a process. It's January now. Our, our fiscal year ends at the end of February. And we have nominated a, a bunch of y'all to serve on the board. This is what we're talking about right here. Right? This, this is where the pastors don't impose solutions on the congregation. But the congregation, you all represent, you, you vote and you select some board members. And then I sit with them and, and we wrestle through this stuff and you trust them. Right? Because we know, I know, the pastors know, we can't do it all. I desperately need the board, the finance committee, and the SDMI, and, and NYI, and NMI, all those things. We all desperately need Jerry not to be the only one doing those things, right? <laughs> desperately, desperately. Verse 3 and 4, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the Word. Why? Because you can't do it all. They knew this. And again, the fact that the seven men were to serve tables, right? If you read further into Acts, they, they do some amazing things. We know at least two of them, Philip and Stephen, they go on. They're still preachers. <laughs> Absolutely. But they felt the call of God to serve tables, too. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, and a whole bunch of Greek names that Leanne did a great job with, and I'm not even going to bother, all right? So here's the fascinating thing, though, about this. They're all Greek names. You recognize that. Now, it doesn't mean they're all Greek. A lot of Jews of this time, because Greek culture was so invasive and pervasive in the Mediterranean world that they would take on Greek names. They had a Jewish name, Hebrew name, but they also had a Greek name. So we don't know if these were all actually Greek, but they all definitely had Greek names, all right? So, and I, I follow this closely, there's a little bit of conjecture here, okay? So even if the wealthier Hebrew families probably gave more to the fund than the poorer Greek 
Christians, and conjecture, a lot of theory about this. And even if the Hebrew widows were probably better cared for by their families than the Greek widows, because in Hebrew culture, the sons and daughters take care of the widowed mom. That was the deal. In Greek culture, mom just, (laughs) good luck, mom, right? So the Greek widows were being kind of, or the Hebrew widows were kind of being taken care of, and the Greek widows were not. They were way worse off just because of the situation. Nobody was trying to, oh, let's get the Greeks, right? (laughs) No, I don't think that that was the case. And even if the culturally loose Gentile Greeks didn't fully or even closely sometimes adhere to the ancient traditions of the Jewish people, in spite of all those reasons, the gathered body thought it best to elect seven Greek-speaking men. Here's the Hebrews, right? They've had their own culture for millennium. And they recognize it. We we can't do it all. We can't do it all. And so you see the first kind of collaboration of the early church. We need to to start working with some outsiders here, right? They don't follow our custom and cultures. They won't speak our language. They won't read our version of Scripture. They read the Septuagint, the Greek version. I mean, ugh. But, But I think God is telling us something. We can't do it all. We can't do it all. The Hebrew Christians knew that. And I think they were solely figuring out that maybe God didn't want them to do it all. And I think that's something we need to figure out too. Let me keep reading. Verse 6, 7, I mean. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I, you know, I, I looked and looked and looked and looked. I couldn't find anything on this. My, and I, so I just started guessing. <laughs> I would imagine that that if you were a priest in a very, very ritualistic religion that had become known for not taking care of its poor, these priests who loved God, they looked around and thought, these people are doing it right. We lost our way. We're going to change camps. And they did. And they joined the the new Christians. They joined the way. Again, I, I don't know why, why they did that. So the number of disciples increased not only because the word was preached, but also because tables were waited on, right? You catch that. They were both vitally important. I want to change gears now. We're all given gifts. Paul tells us this in several of his letters. We're all given gifts to utilize and encourage within the body of Christ, right? We all know this. But God does not intend for the Christian community to use all those gifts on, and spend all that on themselves, right? To become insular, self-focused, never the goal, never the topic, never the plan at all, right? We're to be salty salt and bright light in the world, right? This means that we got to work together. And as we work together, God is calling us to also work with entities outside of this body so that they can get a taste of the restorative and redemptive work of Christ. Now, not waiting till they die, but, but now. So when we draw back from this incident in Acts chapter 6, this single incident, it can really be seen as kind of as a microcosm, a, a miniature of something much bigger, much grander going on. Right? The fact that Jesus, God through Christ, is redeeming the entire creation, not just the Greeks, not just the rest of the Jews, right? All of creation, not just humanity, all 
of creation. Gospels and the book of Acts, they simply contain the origin story of this movement of God to redeem everything that he created and called good, but it all got twisted, got all beat up just a little bit. So follow me now. I'm going to get very, very logical here because it's the only way that I could process this information. Just as we see Jesus in the early church collaborating with outsider Greeks and attending to the dual yet intimately involved spiritual and physical needs of the people around them, one should also expect to see the church, which is the body of Christ, Jesus, collaborating with outsiders and attending to the dual yet intimately connected physical and spiritual needs of the people around us. It should never be exclusive. Although the disciples wanted to be the exclusive representatives of Jesus, right? We know this. Every time they saw somebody doing something that they weren't part of the group, they, they flip. Let me show you this. Uh, Jesus thought otherwise, right? So he sends the 12 of, out on a field trip, right? He wants them to learn a few things, to broaden their horizons as, as to what could be, right? They had a very, very narrow vision, an insanely narrow vision of what could be, the possibilities that Jesus was ushering in. And so he sends them on a field trip. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says this. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority. Why? <laughs> Jesus knew you can't do it alone. So he's sharing his power and authority with all of us to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Right? You can't do it all. Jesus knew this and he needed them to know it. And while they're out, they learned something I think we need to learn too. As we think about collaborating with people outside the church, right? There are some organizations, right? We collaborate with Tri-City Food, Tri-City Food Bank, right? They're not a church. We collaborate with uh, the charity, the, uh, I can't remember the other organization. The Chaplaincy, yes. They're not a church, but they're doing God's work, right? Anyway, um, Something that we need to be reminded of. This is in Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, said Jesus, for whoever is not against you is for you. Right? Now you catch that. The apostle John hears and records Jesus saying something very, very similar in his gospel. I'm going to jump very quickly to John chapter 10, verse 16. He says he's talking about sheep and, and shepherds, right, and pins and, and all that. And he says, I have other sheep. <laughs> like, wait, what? You, you love other people more than that? What? <laughs> I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They, too, will listen to my voice. I want you to remember that phrase right there. They, too, will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And again, it sounds so nice and tidy, a doctrine of collaboration with those outside the current flock, right? Boom, right there. But then Luke has Jesus two chapters later saying the exact opposite. It's like, What? Right, two chapters later in chapter 11, at least it appears that Jesus is saying something opposite. Here it is starting in, in verse 21, uh, Luke chapter 11. It says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. No, no, wait, 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 time out. 
right? It doesn't just appear to be different, right? This is the exact opposite wording. Hit that next slide there, right? Here they are side by side. I'm just going to give you a moment because it, it took me a moment. I kept looking at them going, are they saying the same? No, I think they're saying two opposite. I'm not sure. And all the negative, the double negative, it's like, oh, I'm not. And just give you a minute. Just give you a minute there. Here's the deal. As confusing as it appears, and let, let me help you through it here. What we have here is a biblical model, a biblical basis for collaboration with those outside the body of Christ. Right? Like, wait, what? Both, let's see, why, and again, why collaborate, right? We can't do it all. Now, here's the key difference between the two. In the first situation, in Luke chapter 9, verse 50, someone isn't a part of the group, the 12, right? But that someone still seems to hear and obey the voice of God. Remember back in John 10, verse 16. You, you, I know you've met people like this, right? They are like beyond godly. They're just doing amazing. They're listening to God, but they don't attend church. Right? You ever met somebody like that and you wonder, why don't, I, you know, for whatever reason, you know people who, are, who listen and they hear God and they obey God, but they don't, they don't necessarily go to church. It's, a, it's got to wrestle with that just a little bit. But that's what's going on here. And Jesus responds as we too should respond, right? Basically, if someone is working with God, don't bother them. That's what that first one was, what was basically saying, don't bother them. And in fact, the corollary is also true. You can go ahead and collaborate with them. They're both doing the work of God, but you can't do it all. So we have all these organizations within this, this city here and in, in this city there, that, that, that could help. That could help bring light and life to places of darkness and death. See, in this passage, someone on the outside is doing what the disciples couldn't do just 10 verses earlier, right? Go back to verse 37. This is 47 going on. 10 verses earlier, they couldn't cast out a demon. And now this guy who's not even one of the disciples, he's like, boom, 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 boom. And the disciples are like, wait a minute. He's He's doing better than we are. I think Jesus, I get the impression that Jesus wanted them to see that because he needed the disciples to know that they can't do it all themselves. They, they got that in their heads. In fact, the, 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 the situation for this passage is they're arguing about who gets to be the greatest in the new kingdom, who gets to be in charge, right? And Jesus is going, oh, my goodness, you guys, listen. <laughs> you need to Listen. But again, if somebody or a group is actively opposed to God, okay, now that's a whole different situation, right? This is in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. If someone is working against God, don't bother with them, right? Don't collaborate with them either, right? You see what's going on with these two passages. In this passage, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders accusing him of working with Satan, right? This group does not like Jesus, doesn't like what Jesus is doing, and clearly is not listening to God. And Jesus said, stay away from them. They will wreck you. They will wreck your organization. They will wreck your values. There are a lot of people you can collaborate with, but if people who hate God, don't. Just don't. You can minister to them, but don't partner with them. That, that makes sense. And Jesus responds as we should too, right? Don't bother with them, and definitely don't collaborate with them. Now, let's take this discussion to another level, to an even grander vision of what, what could be. Right? As we attempt to attend to the overwhelming physical and spiritual needs of the people in the tri-cities. Now, follow my logic here again. 
If the church, which is the body of Christ, is the visible kingdom of God on earth, then the church should also operate or visibly appear to be the visible kingdom of God. That makes sense. Pretty straightforward statement. And here's what we know about this kingdom of God ushered in by Jesus. When it fully arrives at the second coming of Christ, God will be all in all. God won't just be in the church. He will be all over the place. Every organization, whether it's called a church or not, God's going to be fully involved. And Christ is inviting us to keep, to work alongside him and his Holy Spirit to keep that process moving in that direction to that point where someday God will be all in all. My impression, it will take that second coming. But until then, we're to be working toward that exact same goal. The way we run this church, as we begin to work with outside organizations and entities, and they they discover, hey, there's different ways to run organizations and entities. And that church, they're doing some of the same stuff that we're doing. And follow this. This is kind of how it unfolds. This is how it should unfold as you see it. Just as one should expect a believer to be transforming into the image of the Jesus in that believer, right? The believer is expected to eventually be a mirror image of the Jesus within that believer, right? Makes sense. One should also expect the church to be transforming into the image of the Jesus within that church, within the believers of that church, right? The church is expected to eventually be a mirror image of the Jesus within that church. Now, let me take it one more step. One should also expect the community to be transforming into the image of the Jesus within that church, within that community, right? The community is expected to eventually, because God will eventually be all in all, right? The community is eventually expected to be the mirror image of the Jesus within that church, within that community. And it all happens when we realize that you can't do it all. We can't do it all. Christ didn't call us to do it all. Christ called us to lead it all, but he didn't call us to do it all, right? The church leads the way into this new life, but we don't do it exclusively, right? The idea is that we take everyone along with us, leave no person behind. That's the heart of God, that we would leave nobody behind, So let's spend a little bit of time, just last bit of time before we leave here, just dreaming. I want to share a church. I read an article this week about a church that really, I think, they, they, they got it, right? And I kind of want to share their, their journey with you. Um, history of their collaboration, they used to work only within their denomination, right? Any partnering they did had to be, and I don't even know what they were, they never said. Well, then they, they, they took a big leap of faith, and they began to work with other Christian organizations, Tri-City Food Bank, Chaplaincy, places like that, right? And then they eventually expanded to work with non-Christian or secular organizations, and that was a big step for them. That was a big, big, very, very scary step. And here's what they write. Most, maybe all of these secular organizations, they have Christians in key leadership positions, but that's not why we work with them. Here's the reason why we felt it was important to work with secular, non-faith-based community groups, right? First one, it can impact their perception of the Christians and of Jesus, 
right? He writes, several years back, their church raised funds for a music program in the local school district, right? It was a very big deal. And they went and met with the school teachers at that school, and, the, and there were several teachers in tears. They, they couldn't figure out why was this church doing this. And the sediment, the conversation that came out is, we thought you hated us, and, and they, thought, they thought we hated them, and they thought we hated us. Well, I didn't say that right. We thought we hated each other. That worked way better. We thought we, we hated each other, and they, they were in tears. They could not believe that these church people who are usually doing this to them Right? They're like, that's an amazing church. So how do we reach our communities if, we have, if they have no idea that we love them? Right? How will they know that we love them if we don't work alongside them? Working alongside, or excuse me, working with those outside the church also is less self-serving. Right? When we partner only within our denomination, right, you know this, we get mission credits. Right? We get, we, we get props. We get pats on the back for a lot of things we do in church. We just do, and it feels good, and that's okay. But the outside world looks and goes, wait a minute, are, are we a number? Are we a target? Do we, is there a, on my back? Because like three of you have come up and said really weird things to me, right? And you, know, you, you know what they're thinking, right? Those people, they targeted me, and if they, if they don't get me, they're going to walk away from me, and they're never going to look back. When members of our congregation, this is what they're writing, go to the state-run center for the mentally handicapped near us, we gain nothing but the joy of serving because it's a state-centered operation. They're not allowed to invite people to church. But I guarantee you the people in that place know they're representing Jesus. They know they're from the church. They don't talk about it, but they know they talk about it amongst themselves, but they can't announce it. Right? They get to experience the Jesus' love through us without any kind of agenda. Reggie McNeil wrote a book, Missional Renaissance, and these, these two things right here, these two benefits of collaboration, he attributes to something that, that is a, a cultural phenomenon he identifies. It's called the emergence of the altruistic economy. I'm just going to name off a bunch of stuff here to kind of get you the idea of what I'm talking about here. Celebrity chefs cooking for charity, benefit concerts, the Gates Foundation, Warren Buffett, Bono, Homes for Humanity, crowdsourced funding, extreme makeover, Tom's Shoes. I don't know if you ever know about Tom's Shoes. You buy a pair of their shoes, and they give a pair to somebody in the third world. You pay a little bit extra, but instead of them pocketing that extra, they actually use it to buy a pair of shoes for somebody in the third world who needs shoes. And unprecedented volunteer organizations and websites devoted to connecting what people have to offer with what people need. I watch it every morning on the news during this COVID, how non-church entities have heard the voice of God and stepped up and done amazing things. And I know every pastor in the nation is like, oh, wow, man, why can't my, man, that'd be great if my church did that. <laughs> it's crazy. People believe they can and should change the world, and they expect commerce, schools, local business, and the church to which they belong to get on board in making the world a better place for everyone, not just for those who agree with us and our lifestyle. Right? They're looking at the church. Will you join us in making this world a better place, or are you going to go do it on your own because you think you can do it all by yourself? This increased spirit of altruism calls the church to move from not just being the recipient of a generous altruistic economy or culture, but also to being generous to that culture. And it promises plenty of willing partners to the church that will collaborate. Some more reasons to collaborate with secular groups. Number three, it stretches our faith, right? 
When we work with unchurched people, we often hear very unchurchy language as they try to make sense of our churchy language, right? And we, we see less than holy behavior. And we, we see it in the church, but we've gotten used to it, and we, we okay it, right? But they ask us some pretty blunt questions about our faith, and we've got to be ready to answer, listen, and love them no matter what the conversation is, because they will ask you. And I'm not talking about theological questions, Right? You won't have to answer theological questions. You're going to have to answer, why do you do that? Why don't you do this? Why are you even here? Collaborating is also humbling. It's terribly humbling, right? Christians aren't better people than non-Christians. We all need Jesus. We don't always express that very well. We come off as very arrogant, like we know Jesus, so we know everything, right? We know something, so we know everything. Not necessarily the case at all. Arrogance is not a Christian virtue. We have the answer. His name is Jesus. But we don't have all the answers. And working alongside people with a common goal, right, is a great way to break us of that arrogance without compromising our faith. There's nothing of us, there's nothing any of us can do to make Jesus look any better, but humility looks really good on us. Right? looks really good on us. Helps people see Jesus a bit more clearly. Collaborating also bursts our church world bubble. Right? Church people see one set of problems, sets, issues, sins in the world, and we all, we, I don't know if you realize this, but we've got a very separate list. Right? They've got a list, and we've got a list, and they don't cross or merge very often. Their concerns are not our concerns. Right? And when we break out of our bubble of all these preconceptions and work alongside unchurched people, we have a better chance of actually understanding and meeting the needs that they actually have instead of the needs we think they should have or they probably have or a bunch of arrogant assumptions. Besides, only Jesus, right? Not only did he live outside the bubble, his greatest criticism was reserved for those who refused to leave the bubble. Ugh. Collaborating also shakes up our comfort zones, right? I like my comfort zone. It's comfortable. <laughs> but it's also enticingly dangerous. Hanging out with fellow believers is incredibly easy, but it's too easy. Being comfortable and easy makes us lazy. When we work alongside our secular counterparts, right, we've we got to be more conscious about what we say, how we act, and how we represent Christ with people whose express ideas we won't hear in church, right? We're going to need to listen more than we talk. That's hard to do. As somebody who has the answer, it's really hard to do. Like, shut up, stop, stop, stop. But it is, it's this discomfort that makes us better and more Christ-like. And it's better than yelling at people on Facebook. Reggie McNeil kind of puts these four into this phenomenon he calls the search for personal growth. Right? Let me just read, a, just again, a short little list here. Rick Warren's best-selling book, right? Purpose Driven Life. People want to grow, right? They want their lives to matter. Self-improvement sections in bookstores. Increased DIY TV, right? Tells the tale. Access to more inf information has fueled a sense that no one, excuse me, access to more information has fueled a sense that one should, one can change the world, right? A real, this, this sense of empowerment because there's all this information everywhere, anytime. So our job. We need to be getting better at, follow, at being followers of Jesus and being better neighbors than good church people. This, it's not an either or. Either or. Two final reasons to work with secular organizations that help us reach people we can't reach. 
One of the groups that their church worked with is a, a shelter for abused women and children. Some of them have been abused by men claiming to be Christians, right? These women will not bring their children to a church, I promise you. Will never happen. But they write that when we show up in our, at our non-faith-based shelter to help clean, repair, paint, and otherwise improve their modest living conditions, we get to show Jesus' love to people who would never look for it in a church. And then finally, the final reason, it increases our, fear of in, our sphere of influence. Right? There's more good work being done by churches than any other group in the world, but people outside the church, they don't know it. Right? Because we, we kind of insulate ourselves while we're doing it. When nobody, nobody knows how can we be light in the darkness when we only hang out with other candles? Love that phrase. Let me quote again. Because our church has intentionally developed a reputation for partnering with people of goodwill, showing Jesus' love without agenda, City Hall calls, up, calls us when neighbors need help. In, in this city, they now have a reputation because they have worked with key people who might not necessarily be church-attending Christians, but they hear and they respond to the voice of God. We call these people of interest, right? These are the people we want to partner with. They, they continue, because of this, we can impact people in our community today that we had no chance to influence just a few years ago. Reggie McNeil calls this third cultural phenomenon, the hunger for spiritual vitality, reversing a centuries-old trend that put God in smaller and smaller boxes, right? The lack of any real progress, listen to this list, fighting disease, hunger, war, injustice, the fact that wealth cannot protect you from the threat of nuclear annihilation, terrorist attacks, or deadly pandemics have led folks to turn back to spiritual belief systems. That's, that, that's, that's a good thing, right? That, that's, that's a good, that, that's God making something good out of something bad. That's not God going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a mess of their lives so they come back to me. That's God going, wow, what a mess, but I, I can do something with this, right? I can, I can work with this. People want to, they want to love the world, but not necessarily through the organized church. They love Jesus, but not his church. The spirituality that the world needs must be robust enough to engage people where they live, work, and play. We must be thinking kingdom impact over church growth. And that's really hard. Even saying it, I like almost choke on the words, right? Church growth matters. But I think in the bigger picture, kingdom growth is the bigger, is the bigger issue of which we are a part of because we can't do it all alone. We can't do it all alone. We have to understand the culture, search for God, and be willing to talk without the props of this building and our religious labels. And I know as a pastor, I'd ten times rather somebody make an appointment to come in and talk to me on my home turf than me to go down to the alleyways and talk on their turf. Anybody? Just being honest with you here. So what are we? Who are we? What are the values that give us the unity that we need for this task. We're a people of commission, right? We're God's image bearers, commissioned by God to bring his light and life into a dark and death-filled world, right? We're a community. We're, built, we're a community built around the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, and we're a people of law and love, right? The commandments, both. One without the other doesn't, it simply doesn't work. One without the other is ugly. And then finally today, we've got a giant task in front of us. 
He's asked us to partner with him in this task, the redemption of the entire creation. But he's also asking us to share that responsibility with the rest of humanity because here's the deal. The salvation of humanity begins when they join that mission. And joining a church doesn't necessarily have to be the way they join the mission, and most likely it won't be. They'll join the mission through some other organization, and then they find a church and go, wow, there's a lot of like-minded people in that building. I like that church. It's like, but we got to meet them halfway. we got to go meet them where they work, live, and play. And we can't do it all. <laughs> we can't do it all. Would you bow your heads? Father, we want to do it all. That's our nature. That's our pride. It's our arrogance. Whatever you want to call it, that, that's us. And yet throughout your word, from the very beginning to the very end, you make so clear that we're not expected to do it all alone. Right? We're all in the same boat. This is just one earth. So, Father, as we, as we do church, as we establish our values, our shared values, our shared common interests, Father, sh show us some common interests with people outside these walls. Make them really, really clear for us because we just don't tend to see them very well. Father, open our eyes to things that you see. Thank you for the fact that you're already doing this, you've been doing this, and you'll continue to do this until you send your son back to complete everything. Father, thank you for everything that you've been doing for us. Thank you for your son who makes everything possible. In his name we pray. Amen.